Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I'm your host, Andreas Kasai. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, featuring the groundbreaking journeys of Black, Indigenous, and other peoples of color, psychiatric, and mental health nurses in their quest to meet the urgent and unmet needs of minority communities in America. We are so excited to talk to today's guest, so let's get started. Dr. Cheryl Woods Giscombe, welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. Thank you. Let me start by asking you to please introduce yourself to our audience. Hello, everyone. I'm Cheryl Woods Giscombe. I'm a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, as well as a social and health psychologist, and I work as a professor at UNC Chapel Hill School of Nursing. And uh, tell me, Dr. Giscombe, what inspired you to pursue a career in nursing? and why psychiatric and mental health nursing in particular? Wow, um, that's such a great question. So my original field, um, my original discipline is psychology. So my undergraduate degree is in psychology from North Carolina Central University in, in North Carolina. And my goal was to earn a PhD. And so after doing research as an undergraduate student, I, I decided that instead of being a clinical psychologist, I wanted to be a social and health psychologist to learn about the social and relational factors that contribute to health and illness. But my very first semester as a PhD student, I collected data in a hospital clinic. We collected data from pregnant women to understand the contributions of stress to birth outcomes. And every day I would sit in that clinic and observe the relational experiences between the patients and their provider and the main provider there, unbeknownst to me, was a nurse practitioner. And so I was already starting to desire more hands-on work in addition to my research and was not certain that I wanted to finish my PhD. But when I was in the clinic and, 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 and engaging with the provider and seeing how she worked with her patients, you know, that led me to decide that I wanted to become a nurse. And so long story short, I pursued my PhD, but also um, enrolled in the 12-month accelerated BSN program at Stony Brook University and did both psychology, psychiatry, mental health, all of those things. Those I've always had a passion for that, always interested in the role of stress and mental health and physical health. And so from the beginning, I knew I wanted to pursue psychiatric nursing in addition to psychology. And so I pursued a psych mental health NP. After I finished my PhD, I worked as a psychiatric nurse on a psychiatric unit as an RN. But after I finished my doctorate, I applied for and enrolled in the Psych NP program at UNC Chapel Hill. And the SAMHSA program um, was a big contributor to that. It, it allowed me to do that. And I can share more about that later. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Giscombe. I'm curious to hear more about how learning or hearing more about the social backgrounds of, you know, the patients that you were observing at that clinic, how that influenced your research interests? Actually, I think they were kind of solidified prior to working in the clinic. I was always curious, I guess since a teen, being a teenager, curious about why African-Americans had higher rates of certain chronic health conditions like diabetes and heart disease, HIV. You know, I wasn't willing to accept that it was just because. I figured there must be something behind that. And my, my mother worked as a case manager, so I got to see a lot from her work in terms of social factors that influence people's lives. And my father is a retired dentist, so my sister and I worked in his office from really young, maybe I was 11 or 12 when I started. So we saw social factors there, too, that influence people's ability to access and, and follow up with health care. Again, I was really intrigued by emotional well-being and psychological well-being and what role that played in overall health um, and well-being. So what are some of these social historical factors that are particularly unique to African-American women that Im impact their psychological and physical health? Well, the history here in the United States, and I guess it, all over the diaspora, is historical factors related to oppression and trauma and how that has affected families and access to quality of life, quality of where we live, quality of how we work, the family structure. It's not just all negative, it's also the resilience factors, what things allow Black women and Black people in general to be resilient despite all of the chronic trauma and stressors they've experienced over generations. So 
as an undergraduate student and actually as, even as a high school student, I took courses in African studies and black studies. I was able to connect the dots with mental health through my professors who helped us connect those dots and just wanted to be able to examine that with research, but also apply that in clinical practice so that people could have access to holistic care. I know when we say the word holistic, we talk about like integrative medicine and things like that, but holistic also means, I think, taking into consideration all that people are and all that they bring to um, situations. So when we're looking at an individual, what is what what are they coming with and how is that affecting their mental health and then, of course, how that in turn affects their physical health and their family health. In this regard, you are now the principal investigator on an NIH-funded research study on stress and diabetes prevention amongst African-American adults with prediabetes. So how big a problem is diabetes among African-American communities and how does that compare with other ethnic or racial groups? African-Americans have what we call disproportionately high rates of diabetes and diabetes-related illness compared to white Americans. We know Latinx or indigenous populations also have high rates of diabetes. And when diabetes occurs, the morbidity is, is more severe in terms of chronic kidney disease, having to have amputations, and then having related cardiovascular and neurological impairments such as dementia and heart disease. And so with the study that I'm leading now actually focuses on reducing cardiometabolic risk factors. Um, it builds on a study where we only included African-American men and women with prediabetes. And now we're focused on women in particular for this study who have any cardiometabolic risk factors. And part of it also relates to our high rates of overweight and obesity. So greater than, you know, 70%. And, and I don't want to misstate the, the, the statistics. I'm, it's like going away, even though I say it all the time, but like we have very high rates of overweight and obesity among African-American women. And that contributes to more sedentary behaviors, like sedentary behavior leads to that, but it contributes to more of that, which then makes it harder for women to engage in activities that can reduce their risk for cardiovascular diseases and diabetes. And mental health, you know, is a factor in that. And I want my research, I really wanted to make sure we don't overlook the role of mental health, the role of stress, um, the role of perceived inadequacies of social support and being able to have what we call the wherewithal to do these activities that we say are basic in terms of eating healthy and exercising 30 minutes a day, five times a week. Those are supposedly basic things to do to reduce our risk and to maintain health. But in the context of um, high levels of stress and ob obligation to care for family members and friends and the context of work, African-Americans also have disproportionately high rates of having more than one job. So they have their one job and then they often also have to work another part-time job to make ends meet. And so that affects our sleep and quantity and quality. So it's like all these things come together. And so if we really want to reduce these rates of cardiometabolic illness, we have to focus on all of those factors in addition to helping people know that they can do this, not just telling them to do it and then leaving them uh, alone to do it, helping them to understand the connections between all of these things and to acknowledge the fact that stress is important and that they're not alone in, in recognizing that stress is a factor that must be addressed also to reduce these risk factors. And how is the message getting through, particularly to the people who are affected, to the women who are undergoing this stress and have all these multiple pressures? People know themselves, they know the stress that they're undergoing, but is the acknowledgement that this is something that can be handled or that can be treated or massaged, if you will, through accessing psychiatric and mental health care, is that acknowledgement there? And if they do acknowledge it, is it possible to get the care and what kind of care do they receive? That's such a great question. I developed a conceptual framework called Superwoman Schema. And when we were doing the foundational research for that, which was supported by the SAMHSA MFP program, I asked that question of women, can you do all of these things and take care of yourself? And I would get this look of bewilderment, like I'm not so sure <laughs> from most of the women, like they, it was like a, a big question um, because they didn't know that they could fit it in. 
um, the more we talk about mental health and acknowledge, because there's a stigma, right? And so it, and in some situations, people aren't talking about it because they feel that they are not supposed to show weakness or show vulnerability. But over the years, there's been more discussion about the stigma of mental illness. And I think the pandemic has definitely been a double-edged sword because there's much more discussion about stress and the need to engage in self-care. And people are, I think, more willing to disclose that they need extra support. And so I'm I'm grateful, not for the pandemic, but grateful for the fact that it seems like the stigma of having emotional distress or mental health concerns is being reduced. And so it's a journey, though, because even though women who've been in our study, we talk about it, we acknowledge it, they share, it's, it's a different thing when then they go home and try to figure it out. So what we found from our first study, after we did focus groups and interviews with those women, they loved our intervention. They loved the fact that we were acknowledging all the different multifaceted aspects of their lives. But they said when they would go home, it's almost like they lost those lessons because there were still all those things to do. And so in this study, we're trying to help implement it more so in the home setting. And actually, we designed this study to be community-based. It was going to take place in a community center where we had our interventions. But the pandemic forced us to do it virtually via Zoom. And that's actually not a bad thing because now they are having to do the intervention components in their home, having to set up places in their home and use what's in their home to actualize the intervention. Could you describe perhaps a little bit more what this superwoman syndrome or schema is? As a graduate student, my focus was on stress and coping. So the contributions of psychological stress to health outcomes, looking at two primary pathways, how stress influences our behaviors and also how stress leads to psychophysiological mechanisms that influence blood pressure, diabetes risk, et cetera. In research on stress, we have more information that stress is a factor, right, that contributes to adverse outcomes. And we were getting a clue that stress was a factor that contributed to disparities or disproportionately high rates of stress-related outcomes in Black Americans. But in order to intervene, we need to make sure we were describing or measuring stress comprehensively or else whatever we're targeting is too generic. It's not specific enough for our experiences. And so some of my mentors or some of the trailblazers in stress and coping research, like Dr. Norman Anderson and some of his colleagues identified racism as a stressor. And so that if we're measuring stress, we we need to include racism as a potential stressor for African-Americans. And then some of my other colleagues who are doing women's studies research identified sexism as a stressor, you know, gender-related stress. And so for Black women who are Black and women, then we need to integrate both of those in addition to generic stressors. And not just sexism, but stressors that are specific to women's roles, right? And so even with that, I came across popular literature books, magazine articles that describe this concept of the strong Black woman role. And there were some researchers, colleagues, who were starting to develop a measure, but that measure was not available when I was working on my dissertation. So I decided to explore it a bit more, the strong Black woman role, the superwoman role, so that we could examine that in um, empirical research. So I did focus groups with Black women across age ranges, across socioeconomic statuses, and across education levels, income levels. A lot of the research at that time on Black women and Black people in general was on low-income Black people. But one of the things we found, or that some researchers had found, is that even among highly educated Black people, disparities were still in existence. And so if you just focus on low income, we might start looking and thinking it's the financial issues, and, and it is very much so, but there's more than that. And so we included a diverse sample of black women and um, the analysis helped us to identify five characteristics of what I now call superwoman schema. And those are a perceived obligation to present an image of strength, a perceived obligation to suppress emotions, perceived obligation to resist getting help from others or resist being vulnerable, a motivation to succeed despite limited resources, So making a way out of no way. And the fifth one was caregiving or 
prioritization of caring for others over self-care. And so those five characteristics are what we call superwoman schema characteristics. But what we also learn from the women in our studies is that it didn't just come out of nowhere. So they're antecedents, and we call them proximal and distal antecedents. And some of them involve how they saw their mothers, their aunts, grandmothers coping with stress. They talked about living in a society where um, black women experience oppression and racism, but also living in a society where you have to protect yourselves from being sexually vulnerable, from being vulnerable in relationships. They also talked about wanting to be productive. So if I want it done, I may as well do it myself, that kind of thing. So they were both proximal. So their family issues and what they saw in their own families, what they saw on television and in the literature, thinking about Maya Angelou. But then they also talked about society and historical factors that influence the Black experience in general. And also, not only did we talk about the antecedents and the characteristics, but women taught us about what they perceived were the outcomes. And they were really well aware, or at least they perceived that this had an affected outcome such as, you know, cigarette smoking, overeating, sedentary behavior, postponing health care visits. They even talked about things like thinning hair, poor sleep. They were aware when they had were given an opportunity to talk about the connections, they were they sensed a connection between these characteristics and their health status. And so since then we've developed an instrument that's psychometrically sound and rigorous um, that we've used to do more research, quantitative research with black women, where we're finding these connections empirically, where superwoman schema characteristics are associated with all of those things I just mentioned, sedentary behavior, depressive symptoms, binge or emotional eating, poor sleep quality. But it's not all um, bad. As I mentioned before, it's a double-edged sword, and we're not suggesting that being strong is a negative thing. And in fact, when we look at each of those characteristics separately, we're finding that strength may all, may actually be protective. So when when women uh, endorse you know characteristics of strength, it can be a good thing. But in the context of emotional suppression or in the context of prioritizing caregiving over one's own self care, that's where some challenges can come in in terms of health. Motivation to succeed has also been identified as potentially protective. So. All five aren't necessarily bad. It's just how those things get combined in a person's life and how long they how long they do that. Even emotional suppression could be adaptive. There are places that are appropriate and not appropriate to share how one is feeling. But if one doesn't have a close friend, a, a counselor, a clergy, therapist, when needed to share some of the really challenging things that are going on, that can be an issue over time. Okay, so if I hear you correctly, there's this better understanding and acknowledgement of the factors and what is contributing to the mental health stressors to the psychiatric challenges that African-American women have been going through. But how is this being applied now to improve health outcomes and how widely available is this? Well, I'm glad you asked that. So one thing we're trying to help women do is be more aware you don't want to just change things without having an awareness of how it's affecting you. And sometimes we're so in an automatic mode, we're just doing surviving, caring for ourselves, caring for others as much as we can, that we're not connecting the dots. And that's why my research lab is called the Mind, Body, Health, Equity, and Arts Lab, because what we're trying to do is to help people enhance their mind-body connection. And so when things are occurring being more aware of what effect that's having on their bodies, but also their health behaviors. And also what we're finding too is that women shared that they developed some of these characteristics as a result of what they saw their moms do or their grandmothers or their female caregivers. And so sometimes what really helps women be willing to take stock is to remind them that someone's also watching them their daughters, granddaughters, nieces, mentees. And so for people who prioritize caregiving, that's a good way to enter, to say, well, that's really important to you because many women say, I'm not going to stop caring for other people. And we're not asking them to, but what's the ultimate way you can care for other people is to be aware of how this is affecting you and also be aware of how this might be affecting those people for for whom you care. 
Well, you are somebody who has achieved a great deal. Your resume, your biography is, is quite impressive. From very early on, you've been recognized. And in 2007, you were selected as leader in the field by the American Psychological Association. Uh, you were awarded the Carolyn Payton Early Career Award. And you haven't stepped on the brakes. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it keeps going. Uh, you are somebody who has managed successfully to balance uh, all the different aspects of, you know, successful living. You know, you've, you, you've highly aspirational, somebody who's achieved a lot, working very hard, but also have family and being able to care for others. What was your secret? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I don't think I have a secret. I think Number one, I've been really supported by my family throughout. I've I've had a a family that's been supportive, but I, I think also I I mentioned you know my parents' professions and watching them gave me a foundation that helped me. So it's definitely not isolation. My grandmother was a nurse as well. I'm you know my spiritual practice really sustains me. I also learned in high school and then later in graduate school about the practice of mindfulness, meditation. That helps me a lot, and exercise definitely helps me a lot. That's my one, one source of therapy. I don't have a stigma related to mental health, so when I need to get a tune-up and, and go to <laughs> get some counseling, I'll do that as well, because life is like it's a process where you can develop coping skills for the moment, but then you need to continue to adapt them because life happens. And, and this pandemic has definitely taught us that, that to be resilient, we need to expand the ways in which we cope those factors. So those are some of those, the elements that have helped me a lot. Mentorship too. I've had exceptional mentorship. And again, I mentioned this before, but the SAMHSA MFP program has helped me so much. Um, not only when I was awarded the funding, but the community of scholars even if I don't talk to everyone all the time, you know that they're there and it's like a support. So that's been very helpful too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the MFP is like this super family that embraces everybody and gives them the nurturing that you know gets them through. I've heard this testimony from so many people. Let's turn to the Minority Fellowship Program. How did you become aware of the program and get appointed as a fellow? And if you could give us a little bit more detail into how significant the program has been in your trajectory as a psychiatric and mental health nurse scholar. It's meant so much. I can't say enough about it. But I think I initially learned about it when I was in graduate school, finishing my Ph.D., I knew I wanted to become a psych mental health nurse practitioner, so it was kind of on my list of something to explore. And at the time, they had postdoctoral support in addition to pre-doc support, and it was prior to the master's support that they have now. When I finished my doctoral degree, I was awarded with a postdoctoral fellowship from NIH, so I was a T32 postdoc. And I applied to and was enrolled in the Psych and P program, but I took it very slowly because I had a little baby at home. And also I was trying to get my research going. So I really took courses slowly, but I knew I, I wanted more time to finish the Psych and P before I pursued a faculty position, even though people were telling me I didn't need another postdoc and I didn't need to be a Psych and P. I need to just focus on my research, but I just wanted to make sure I did research that was practical and that would have an effect on people's lives clinically. And so it was my passion to, to do the Psych and P. And so I needed additional support because the T32 was only two years. And so I found, I saw again the SAMHSA program and I applied for it for additional postdoctoral funding. And I specifically requested if part of my training could involve completing the, the Psych and P and that was supported. And so it was the most rigorous. <laughs> I've been in a lot of postdoctoral training programs, even to this day. And the MFP, it really was rigorous in terms of scheduling and demands and expecting us to be excellent. So it was a really good grooming program, <laughs> to say the least. And so not only that, 
but I was supported in an extreme way to do my own research. Some postdocs, it's fine to work on their mentor's research. And at the time, it was Dr. Faye Gary was the director of the program. She had seen my application, and of course, I was accepted, but then I was kind of getting pulled into other research and she said, MFPs do their own research. <laughs> so if anybody has any questions about it, you know, have them reach out to me. <laughs> and so she basically gave me permission, focus on what you said you wanted to study. I could not tell you enough because it set me up so nicely. If I had gone straight into my, my um, a faculty position, I would not have finished the Superwoman Schema research, um, the foundational research. And not only that, during those additional two years of postdoctoral support, I wrote an in my initial, my first ever NIH proposal as a PI, multiple PI with a collaborator, and we got that award. We had to resubmit it three times, two two times. We got it on the third time, but that was when I was funded by the MFP. So that time that I had to write the grant, resubmit, resubmit, and then got. So when I started my faculty position, I started with funding from NIH as a multiple PI. And I had my superwoman scheme of qualitative data supported by the MFP. And I had my second P. All the, those three things during that program. Other postdocs would not have been as enthusiastic about supporting me to get a psych and P degree. They would have wanted me to strictly focus on research. And I, did, I was able to do both. That's a... Uh... Yeah, that's very good validation for the MFP. <laughs> what advice would you have for current fellows that are going through the program or those who've you know recently graduated? Are there things that you wish someone had told you as you were going through? I would say listen to mentors. And, and I say that with a caveat. When you have people at your disposal who are wanting to mentor you, it can be really challenging because you're probably going to get different advice from every person. And then that advice is probably going to be somewhat different than your own passion and what you want to do. But figuring out how to integrate all of it and not dis really dismiss any of it because the wisdom that they have to share is invaluable. Like Dr. Gary said, I'll never forget, she said, papers, your publication is your currency. She said that. That's your currency. Another thing that I learned, which, you know, so she was saying, we can do all these other things, but if you want to achieve in academia, you need to publish. Nothing else matters as much. And then we took our visit to the Hill, the Capitol Hill, and they just emphasized being prepared and being ready and being willing to speak up um, to people that you might see, see as, oh, kind of out of your league type thing. But that was really encouraging to that early in their career to see how our research can influence policymakers and that they were dependent on us to share our research findings and our interests with them as nurses and nurse researchers because they did that was not their expertise and we had something to share. And then the advisory committee, they all had something to share with us that was insightful. At the time, John Lowe was on the advisory committee and we all took a trip to Hawaii and it was not a vacation. It was the least amount of vacation I've ever had because we were booked, say, from 7, probably to 10, a.m. to 10, going on visits, learning about the history and the context of the Native Hawaiian community. And that had implications not only for furthering our understanding of indigenous health and health disparities, but we could apply what we learned from that to other populations and their health disparities, take it all in in terms of the exposure that you have and making those friendships and connections because it won't go away. That's what I advise people to do. And that's why mental health is so important, doing what you need to do so you have room to take it in. It's wonderful that this opportunity is, is made available, one, to be exposed to so much, and then also the freedom to then identify what is your passion and, and uh, the resources to, to pursue that. Yes. So let me Back, let me go back a little bit and looking at some of your present work. You are the current president of the International Society of Psychiatric Nurses and the Associate Dean, PhD Division and Program, Levine Family Distinguished Scholar in Quality of Life, Health Promotion and Wellness at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Nursing. Could you tell me more about your program on mindfulness and wellness? And now you've, you've mentioned some aspects of it. And I ask this recognizing that we are now entering the holiday period, and it is a period that 
oftentimes has a toll on the mental health of people. Not only are the days shorter, and it's also a time when people might feel lonely. This year, we've surpassed 800,000 people who've passed as a result of COVID-19 in the United States. So lots of families who are going into this period with that sense of loss. What are some of your tips for how people can take care of their mental health, especially now? Yeah, um, you've, you described it so um, comprehensively that this is a very trying time, a challenging time, and I don't think anyone has you know escaped it in some way. What I like about mindfulness is its relationship to cognitive behavioral approaches to emotional well-being, and that is the power of, of our minds in terms of our thinking, and it can be used for good or it could be a really big challenge because most of the time what is affecting us emotionally is related to our thinking, and I want to be very clear about it. What That doesn't mean we're not exposed to all these terrible things related to the pandemic or related to, you know, inequities and oppressive structures and things like that. Those exist. How we allow our minds to deal with that is a really big factor. It's not the only factor, but it's a big factor. So in terms of being aware of what's going on in our mind. So are we ruminating? Are we worrying? Are we playing a negative statement over and over again in our mind that either someone said to us directly or we heard on TV or the radio or we read on social media? Like really being more aware at what what's going on in our mind, <laughs> literally what's going on in our mind because that exponentially increases whatever terrible thing we've actually experienced. So I'm not taking away anything from the things that we experience that are very hurtful and challenging. And how do we cope with that? And it's easy to say, pay attention to your mind, try not to worry, try not to replay things over and over again. Um, but, But the more we're aware of how our mind expands those experiences and keeps them with us, we might be able to see the connection between that replaying and our emotional state. And so then when we notice, like if I'm worrying or if I'm ruminating, I'm replaying something, it could be something our third grade teacher said to us or something my parents said to us last week or, you know, something we read on social media. If you're replaying that, is it changing anything about the experience? Is it a proactive thing? You know, it's something, I don't know, I, I, I'm sure there are some neuroscientists who've studied the adaptiveness of replaying, but what it can really do for us is lead to depression and anxiety and negative mood. And we're all at risk for that at some time or another, but what mindfulness practice, which is truly a practice, you're never like perfect at that and you're never 100% always able to apply it. It's a practice, just like lifting weights where the more you do it, the more you can respond with strength to a situation. And so mindfulness practice allows us to get in the habit of awareness and allowing those thoughts to kind of dissipate or at least like bring our awareness back to something that grounds us like our breath um, or our bodies. So, so what are like some of the practical tips? Like I, I find myself doing that sometimes, but there's a moment where you almost lift yourself out of that and you look down and observe yourself and observe your mental patterns. Uh, I'm not a trained psychiatrist or psychologist, but when I see people who are just talking to people who I see are in this kind of funk and I'm like, okay, you know, you got to just sort of lift yourself up and acknowledge these things. What are some tricks or some tips for people who need to get that perspective about themselves? I'm so glad you responded the way you did, because I think it's important to note that someone's in a severe state of emotional distress, severe depression, moderate to severe depression, or has a long-term anxiety or some moderate to severe diagnoses, it's not as easy to say, okay, change your thinking or focus on your thinking. I mean, there we know now, you know, neurophysical processes happening that make it almost impossible for people to do that without additional help through the form of, for some people, medication or therapy or other things that help change the biochemical nature of 
how our thinking influences our uh, emotional state. Yet, even in the context of those types of diagnosis, mindfulness can be helpful and is a tool that can help supplement those other intervention factors that I mentioned, like medication or therapy. It was once thought that mindfulness may not be appropriate for people with psychotic symptoms or schizophrenia, and now we're finding that it can be helpful for people with that diagnosis as well. So basically, it can be potentially helpful for for anyone. Um, And so a tip, um, because it is just like exercise, you have to do it. We know how it works, but how do you do it? And I encourage people to set a timer on their phone. If you work out, it could be part of your cool down where you take time outside or you sit in a quiet location and you set the timer even just for literally two minutes. And you, you try to practice present moment awareness. Like you try to notice thinking, let allow thinking to rise and, and, and distinguish your thoughts from what's happening in the present moment. Even if you try that for two minutes, it can have an effect. And then when you do it, that if you notice that it's helpful in that short of time, it may result in you wanting to do it longer or wanting to do it more frequently. That's one tip. And are there places where people could go to, oh. to learn more about this? Yeah. Yes. Um, most major cities and major medical centers now have courses in mindfulness. One challenge related to that is the cost. They tend to be expensive. But thankfully, there's so much online. So there's the courses that you can take, and usually they're eight or so weeks, weekly, you know, two and a half hours a week. But now there's online courses. There are online modules. There um There are even apps and software companies that provide mindfulness education that people can access. So even if you go YouTube and you try to find mindfulness practice like sitting meditation or body scan meditation, if you enter that into a YouTube search, there'll be lots of different choices for you to select, options for you to select to experience the practice. But how do you filter out the quality stuff? Yeah, that's such a great question, too. I have some thoughts about that, I guess. For the most part, because I go to YouTube often to share links with students, a lot of that is online is quite high quality. But um, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn is one of the most well-known mindfulness instructors and the creator of mindfulness-based stress reduction. So his books are accessible as well as recordings from him online. But there's the Headspace app and then there's also Calm app that are both really used there's another one. I, her name is Rhonda McGee. She's an attorney and an academic in California. Rhonda McGee, M-A-G-E-E, she's an African-American woman who has really integrated mindfulness and social action type work together. And she has recordings and interviews on, um, on in the Internet that are easily accessible, as well as books that are available to the public. So she's a good place to start, too. Yeah, I'd like to just add that, you know, part of it, too, is an acknowledgement of that things do hurt. I think mindfulness allows for that in terms of it's not denying pain or discomfort or trying to push it away. It's it's those feelings are going to come and acknowledging their presence, but then understanding that they're not permanent and that they come and go. And so when they're coming in, or like we say, when the wave of it is in, what do you do during that wave? You have a little bit more wherewithal to choose, more space to choose. Maybe I need to be home and be cozy, or maybe I need to call my best friend, or maybe I need to go for a walk, or what do I do in that time where I'm feeling overwhelmed? So it's not saying you never feel overwhelmed or when you practice mindfulness, everything's going to always be okay. No, because life still happens. It's just what do you do when you're aware that you're not okay? And, and, and what can you do to, to improve your situation in that setting? Okay, so we've been talking a lot about African-American women. But of course, women do not live in a space on there by themselves. One of the things that I've learned recently from my discussion with Dr. Sharps is the role that intimate partner violence has in terms of the high rates of maternal mortality amongst African-American women. 
And it was a surprise for me, partly because a lot of my experience with uh, maternal mortality communication work, if you will, has been in a developing country context where you're thinking about access to healthcare, women living very far from spaces where they can deliver safely, perhaps nutrition, uh, but not intimate partner violence. And so when we're talking about improving the health outcomes, especially the mental and psychiatric uh, health outcomes for African-American women, a big part of it, I think, is also making sure that the men are okay. So what do we have to do for our brothers? Yeah, I completely agree with you. And it's probably an element of Grant's personship that I focus only on women. We have to take things incrementally, but I'm really dedicated to supporting the well-being of the family. And and that means all the different individuals in it, but also specifically interested in, in the well-being of African-American women, men. And so I... Um, hope that at the next iteration of the study will include men as well. But I'm fortunate to work with Dr. Wisdom Powell Brown, who's a colleague who works at University of Connecticut, where she has expertise in men's black men's health. And so we're actually collaborating on a project to implement mindfulness with young black men. A lot of my therapy practice as a psych MP, most of my clients were men. Black men. Um, and so I think my concern and ex- for and experiences with black men across my life, colleagues, classmates, was a big part of what made me decide I wanted to be a psychologist and a psych NP, because you're right, like no, women are definitely not isolated from other individuals in their family unit or their partners, sons, fathers, et cetera, brothers. But black men, just like black women, have had a very unique experience in the United States, for example. And there needs to be an awareness of, of the factors that contributed to that, as well as a desire to develop really tailored programming for them that they can see that's theirs and was developed for them and care about that has concern about their willingness to engage can't just give something that wasn't tailored for them and it needs to not just occur with black men but young young black males as well so that's that's a whole career's worth of work <laughs> probably for uh, numerous people and that's where where it's really wonderful to con- collaborate with others so we can put our heads together and develop those approaches yes there's a lot of work to be done and it's great to see that that work is slowly coming through Another thing that I wanted to explore with you is the impact of media and social media and the images that are out there, very conflicting images about like the representation of Black people in media and social media. You have, on one hand, you know, you've got people like Oprah and, you know, people who've, who've really risen to the top against uh, all odds. And then you have your athletes, and then, you know, the musicians, the Cardi B's, etc. You also have images of Haitian migrants on the border being harassed by law enforcement. First, what is the impact of all of this on the mental health of especially young African-Americans coming up? And how do we make sure that it doesn't become toxic? Yeah, that's such a great question. I have two teenage, well, a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old. And so my husband and I are always curating (laughs) what they watch and trying to balance out what they see. And if we can't do that, then we're talking about what they see to try to help them have a critical approach to digesting what they're seeing. And so there, there. This is beautiful. First of all, the podcast um, telling our own stories, and I think that's what's going to have to happen more. So independent or you know government affiliated institutions that help to tell the stories. It's so important because not seeing oneself represented can be toxic to a person's ability to actualize or see what's possible. Um, And not just for Black Americans, but for all people to have a conception of this idea of who Black people are and have these extremes, like you mentioned, but not enough in the middle. And I think, I actually think it's really 
important to think about research scientists and potentially the support of them having skills in documentary work. We think about interventions and trying to affect population health, but we know that many of our interventions and a lot of our research does not get disseminated to the public in ways that it can really have a strong impact on outcomes. But we facilitate storytelling through either quantitative or qualitative data. And so there's so much that we're not seeing about, I shouldn't say the average American or average black American, but those stories are not told. As you were talking, I don't know why my mind actually went to Delroy Lindo, the actor, who is an example of many of the roles he plays or the many of the ways he articulates his work in film and the arts is really that middle of the road balance that we don't see. It's not all this flash and it's not like this person that's extremely vulnerable. It's a person that has developed his craft and he's really, I can't find the word, the classy comes to mind. (laughs) You know, you think about someone who has self-respect and honors himself, all of that. And we don't see enough, particularly of black males on TV. So I know I'm long-winded with my answers, but I think there's room for us as scientists. I think We will reach more of the younger generation if we add that to our training in some way of scientists because young people aren't as willing as I think some of people my generation or the ones before me to wait so long to have an impact because they have access to ways to um, reach people through Instagram and Twitter and, and their own web pages. But we want them to curate, like you said before, evidence-based information, reliable, high-quality information so that it goes further along. And so for scientists, doctors of philosophy, mental health nurses who are MPs across the board, like if we have that as an additional tool for dissemination, that would really be excellent. I agree. Um, We have an African saying, you know, until the story of the hunt is told by the lion, the story will always glorify the hunter. So it's absolutely critical to be able to share this inspiration with with new generations. And this, I think, is bringing us back to the present moment everybody all across the world is experiencing, and that is the pandemic. We've touched on it earlier. But are there particular psychiatric and mental health challenges that you see emerging that the healthcare community, nursing, has not perhaps paid enough attention to and that you would like to call attention to? You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is allowing, providing an opportunity for psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners and other mental health professionals, but specifically our discipline, to have more wherewithal to develop community programming, businesses that support mental health care provision of diverse populations, underserved populations. Um, That, you know, we talk about media training, but another thing that we really need is business skills. You know, we can have as much passion as any one person can have, but that won't save us when (laughs) we're trying to establish a business that can stay above ground. Because if the ultimate goal is to help people, you know, you want to sustain that. That's a needed thing. We need to be out there. We need to be having our own companies our own franchises, if you if you call it that, mental health across the country. But people are, I guess, concerned or, f- or afraid of that because you don't know the business end of it. So that's essential. We have the skills. We have the passion. But the business partnerships or business within ourselves to, to be able to do that in a way that's sustainable is essential. One of the things that I was hoping to get to with my question on COVID-19 is, you know, what's happening in urban spaces these days. And I'm thinking of Washington, D.C., and maybe this is just anecdotal, but there's a definite rise in crime and a sense of insecurity that impacts, of course, the communities, but also people who are living in places like Southeast D.C., and then care providers that might be coming in from other places to work in these areas. How should nurse practitioners navigate this? Yeah, I have a lot of 
thoughts about this a lot. So it would take a whole nother day probably. But one thing, the first thing that came to my mind is a lot of us are kind of trying to balance practice and academia and research. And it just seems like schools of nursing, I would love to see more models of schools of nursing being providers of community-based mental health care for underserved populations. That's one thing where there's still a bottom line, still needing to be financially healthy, yet there's also an opportunity to educate the next generation of nurses and NPs and researchers to provide culturally sensitive and culturally humble care to the people who need it the most. My six years, my first ever psych NP position was at a nurse-founded, nurse-managed community health center by Black Nurse in Durham, North Carolina. And her model involved caring for underinsured, uninsured people. Ninety-some percent of her clients were African-American. Majority were black males. Most of them lived in the inner city and were financially disadvantaged. And it was a beautiful, beautiful model that was very interdisciplinary, provided training sites for multiple nursing schools, volunteer health providers, but also grant funding. That kind of model, I think, um, needs to be examined, expanded. And, it, and, and, and the thing about the model wasn't just the care that was delivered, but the dignity with which we provided care. So when people walked through the door, they knew they were going to be honored and respected. Everyone was Mr. or Miss So-and-so, no matter what they look like or how they came in. And that that's, I think, one of the missing pieces. I think people are imploding, for lack of a better term, because they've gone too long feeling unseen, unheard, disrespected, erased. And so she, the, the nurse, her name was Dr. Sharon Elliott Bynum, who created that with her sisters. Her intention was that everyone was seen and respected and treated with dignity all the time. And then it became very infectious because if there was anybody new who came in, they were, they were shown really quickly what the philosophy of the place was by the clients. Yeah, we definitely need to take this, things like that to scale. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Giscombe, thank you very much for your time and all this wisdom and for sharing so openly with me. Thank you for being interested. And that does it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting minority communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The Minority Fellowship Program is a SAMHSA grant-funded initiative. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. 